You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. The Christians have a saying, uh, what is evil is called good, and what is good is called evil. And probably nowhere is this more evident, maybe you could argue, but I would say with pride, this might be the most uh, obvious way that this manifests itself, that what is good is called evil, and what is evil is called good. Because biblically, there's this idea of pride, which is very evil. And that is actually, one theologian says, pride is the sin that is pregnant with all other sins. And all sin comes down to some sort of pride issue. And biblically, this is being consumed with yourself, looking inward all the time to make yourself feel better, taking for yourself credit that belongs to God. I'm a good person. I need to do good things. Now, culturally, this is an evil thing biblically, pride, but culturally, This is a very good thing. We call it, though, self-esteem. And self-esteem is a very high thing in our culture, that we value self-esteem. And if you have a problem with yourself, you have a self-esteem problem. And if you culturally, realistically look at yourself as saying, I'm kind of full of myself, I'm a terrible person, well, you have a self-esteem problem, you need to fix that. That'll solve your problems. And the advice is, become more proud, and that'll fix all of your problems. So what is an evil thing biblically, pride, is called a good thing culturally, self-esteem. But everybody has a pride problem. A Christian or non-Christian, religious or non-religious, everybody has a problem with pride, being consumed with yourself, looking inward to try to find the answers rather than looking to God. And the opposite of pride is humility. You'll either be humbled or you will be humiliated. That's God's plan. First to be humbled, and if that doesn't work, you'll be humiliated. It says in Luke 12:3, Jesus says that whatever you've spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. So all the things you've been trying to hide out of pride will be exposed. So if you will not be humbled, if you will not humble yourself, you will be humiliated, you will be exposed. Either in this life or on the day of judgment, you will be exposed. You will be either humbled or you will be humiliated. And so tonight as we read Romans 11, we're looking at these two conflicting ideas, pride and humility. And particularly humility before God. As Christians, we should be humble in all areas of our lives, which is impossible to fully achieve in this life. But it starts with being humble toward God. And even as Christians, we have a problem with pride against God. And the proper response to what God has done for us is to humble ourselves. Because again, we'll either be humbled or we'll be humiliated. We'll be exposed and shown that we're not really as great as we are. So these are conflicting ideas, pride and humility. Now pride looks at the sins of others and says, I'm not that bad. Humility looks at our own sin biblically and says, I need Jesus. See, it's interesting that really biblically the only time we look inward is to look at our own sin and to repent of that. Not really to find answers to sin, but to look at it and turn to Jesus. Pride says, I want to be recognized for what I do. Humility says, I want Jesus to recognize what I do and be a faithful servant. Pride says, I need to do this because it depends on me. Without me, this won't get done. Humility says, I'll trust Jesus to do it because it depends on Him. Pride looks at the speck in your brother's eye, to use Jesus' language. Humility looks at the plank in your own eye. Pride says, I don't deserve to be treated like this 
Humility says Jesus didn't deserve to be treated the way he was treated. And pride says, I deserve a better blank, a better spouse, a better marriage, better friends, a better church. Pride says, I deserve better than that, where humility says, Jesus deserves a better servant. See, pride is all about us. Humility is about Jesus. If you didn't have a pride problem, you wouldn't have a sin problem. Like I said earlier, all sin ultimately boils down to some sort of pride issue, being full of yourself and giving to yourself the glory that belongs to God. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, you really don't care about pride. Because again, culturally, it's self-esteem. This is really the answer to all of our problems in the culture, is feel better about yourself. So you don't care about pride. You are not humble before God because you are exalted in your own eyes. But if you are a Christian, pride needs to be a daily struggle. And we can't overcome pride by saying, I need to be humble. We overcome pride by saying, God, humble me. He needs to do the humbling. Because if we do the humbling, I mean, pride is tricky that way. Because if we humble ourselves, well, then we're proud about it. And if we say we're not proud, then we're proud about it. So the only solution to pride is for God to do the humbling. And to look at God first. Because we'll never defeat pride on this side of heaven. But trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior is our only step in that direction. Because if you never humble yourself before God, why would you humble yourself to anyone else? Because if you're going to say, well, if there is a God, I don't care. He needs to make himself worthy of me. You're not going to care if you're hurting other people because of your pride. If you won't humble yourself for God, you're not going to humble yourself for other people. So it starts with that. And even as Christians, if we don't have that proper response to God and what He's done for us, if we don't humble ourselves to Him, we'll never humble ourselves to each other. So this is the main big idea tonight, Romans 11. It's about humility. So just to fill in with the context of Romans, that's helpful because Romans is a letter written to the Romans by Paul the Apostle through the Holy Spirit. So it was God speaking through Paul to write this letter. And he wrote it to the church in Rome, is a systematic outline of salvation. It lays out very systematically what salvation consists of. And it's separated into parts. In chapters 1 through 3, we deal with condemnation, which answers the question, why do we need to be saved? Because we're under God's wrath and we're under His condemnation and we're separated from Him because of our sin and because He is holy. So the first few chapters, you really feel terrible reading about it because that's you if you don't look at it in a prideful way. Because we're all sinners and under God's condemnation. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with the topic of justification in our salvation, which is a legal change. It's God saying, rather than you are guilty of sin and you are under condemnation, you're free of that. Jesus paid the price for it. Jesus paid the price of your sin. And now legally you're declared righteous in God's eyes. It's not necessarily an inward change. It's a legal change. You were guilty and now you're innocent. You're under condemnation and now you're under salvation because of what Jesus did. Because you switched places with him at the cross and then you were justified. Romans 6 through 8 is about sanctification. And that's what happens after justification. Growing with Jesus, walking with him trying to become a better servant in humility because of His grace, not because we need to do it or save saved by works, but because we love Him, because we've been justified, so now we walk with Him. Now we're in the section of Romans about election. This is Romans 9 through 11, so we'll finish this up tonight. About election, this answers the question of who is saved. And it's pretty controversial. Romans 9, a couple weeks ago, says God decides who's saved. Just because. Because He's God. God decides to save some people. He decides not to save other people. But Romans 10 also says we're responsible for choosing or rejecting Jesus. So it's both of us. God is sovereign, but we are responsible. And Romans 11 says how should we respond to this? And how should we be humbled looking at this idea of who is saved and who is not? And what the Holy Spirit does through Paul here is look at the failure of the nation of Israel. Israel was God's chosen nation. And He redeemed them out of slavery. And He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law and gave them all the ways, the things they had to do to worship God. And He chose the nation of Israel because He wanted to. Not because they deserved to be chosen. Not because they were a great nation. But because specifically kind of for the opposite reason, God chooses the nation of Israel. 
But the nation of Israel fails God. And that's what Paul's writing about in Romans 11, that Israel, even though was as a nation chosen by God to be his people, they reject God's Messiah, Jesus. They think Jesus isn't the Messiah we were looking for. We wanted a conqueror. We wanted a king who is going to take us out of slavery from Rome. And what God sent was actually part one of his plan, that he would send his son to pay for sin and to justify us, and he'll come again to rule the world. But at this point in time, the nation of Israel had failed God because they rejected Jesus. Because as we saw last week, Jesus is a stumbling stone to salvation. People want to earn their salvation rather than it being given by grace. But it says here, and it says throughout the Bible, that one day Israel's failure will no longer be failure, that they will, as a whole, turn to Jesus and accept Him as Messiah at some point in the future. But right now, Israel has failed God. For the most part, Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul is writing here, what can we learn from that as Christians, as Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, what can we learn from Israel's failure? And that's humility. And we'll actually see nine ways we should be humble before God. And the big idea is because God is sovereign in who he chooses for salvation, we need to respond with humility toward God. And so let's dig into Romans 11. First, Paul writes about how Israel has failed, how they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And we see a few ways we should be humble. So first, verses 1 through 6, grace humbles us. I say then, has God cast away his own people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was Jewish. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So the first thing we should see to humble before God is this idea of grace. Now, grace should create a response of humility because in our pride, we want to say it's works that save us, that we deserve to be saved by God. Whereas grace says... That's God's unmerited favor in your life. You don't deserve salvation. You deserve to be condemned and separated from God. But God, because of His love, unites you with Him through the blood of Jesus. That's grace. And grace humbles us because we don't earn grace. It says here, if you earn grace, it's not grace. It's works. And the only way for grace to be grace is to have no works involved at all. Nothing you do caused God to choose you. Nothing you do caused God to save you. You are the problem, and God saves you by grace through His Son, Jesus. So grace, we should respond in humility, not in pride. We see here what Paul brings up is Elijah, for a prophet from the Old Testament. You read about him in the book of 1 Kings. And Elijah had better works than us, I would say. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say a guy in the Bible who God spoke to directly probably had better works to look at than we did. Elijah was a prophet. God directly spoke to him. And God, uh, he, he goes to heaven in a, what am I trying to say? Chariot of fire. Yeah, God, there you go. He, uh, so Elijah had a lot to be proud of as far as works. But he was still hopeless. That's what he's saying here. This, he says, Lord, They have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. When Elijah is looking at just what he sees, just what he sees from a human perspective, he doesn't have any hope. And that's how a lot of us are. We don't have hope, because from what we see, there is no hope. Because when if it's about works, if it's about the good we do, we know we don't deserve any favor from God, because we're sinners. And when Elijah, with all he's done, all he's seen from God, doesn't see any hope when he's looking at just himself. He says, I alone am left. From what I see, I'm the only one who is serving you, God. When he's looking at himself. But God, 
responds to him and says, I reserve for myself 7,000 men. That God sees more than we do. And God saved those people by grace. And the opposite of grace is works. And when it's, we look at it from our point of view, it's hopeless. But grace should humble us. Now Christians, we will always say we're saved by grace, but this is a huge problem I've seen in a lot of people is this idea, Galatians talks about it specifically, that we know we're saved by grace, but then we think we're continuing to be saved by works. But that's not the case. It's grace at the beginning and grace throughout. We do not earn our salvation later. We never earn it. Because when we look at our own works, we're like Elijah, we're hopeless. But God knows more and God saves us through grace. So we should be humbled because of that grace. Secondly, we should be humbled by the idea of election. Verses 7 through 10. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect, the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So here's the idea of election. Again, this is God choosing to save some people, not choosing to save others. This says right here, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. It says that in verse 7. What Israel was seeking was righteousness by works. They are seeking to earn God's favor. We read about that last week. And that's why Jesus is a stumbling stone. Because Jesus says you can't earn your salvation, it's only through me. And Israel was seeking righteousness, but they stumbled at Jesus. It says that only the elect obtained it. The people that God chose to receive salvation were the only ones who obtained it. Because we can only obtain it by grace, by God choosing. Because if God doesn't choose people, it works in some way. So for grace to be grace, God chooses people. He elects people, and the rest were blinded. But the opposite, again, of humility is pride. And our pride does not like this. Our pride wants to earn it. And this was a couple weeks ago in Romans 9, where Paul deals with this specifically. The pride issue with God choosing some people, with electing some people and not electing others, the problem is we think God shouldn't have that right. We think we say, isn't God unfair that He chooses some people and other people go to hell? If God can save some people, why doesn't He save everybody? And we get on the judgment seat to judge God in our pride. And we say, if I was God, I would pick everybody because I'm more fair. But Paul writes in Romans 9, Who are you to reply against God, O man, that we're the clay and He's the potter and He gets to decide what to do? But our pride, again, does not like that God will choose some people for salvation and not choose others. So this idea of election humbles us because we sinned. We caused the problem. But God solves the problem by sending His Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to be a sacrifice for us on the cross. Because we're saved by grace and we have nothing to do with it. You see, other religions, other belief systems have this works mentality. It's not grace. You earn it. And that appeals to our pride. Because whenever that is, that's religion. You earn God's favor, and God will choose you if you earn it. But that leads either to pride, because I earned it, I'm good, I can follow the rules, I can do the religion, or it leads to despair. I'm not good enough, I'll never be good enough. Look at those guys doing all everything right. I'm a failure. You see, election, God choosing by grace, not by works, humbles us, it puts us at all the same playing field. None of us earned it. God chose us. Third, we should be humbled by failure. Verses 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Because again, Israel had failed God. They did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And what did that failure mean? It means we get to be saved because that was part of God's plan. That He opens up salvation to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, so that everyone can be saved by Him. We'll get more into that in a little bit. But Israel 
failed. And failure humbles us. Maybe like nothing else does, maybe, except our pride rejoices in our failure. And this is culturally, again, what is evil is called good. Because we say, what the world says is, our failures are really what define us. Our failures is what make us us. And if you can't accept my failures, then you don't deserve me. And we take pride in our failures. And we minimize our failure. It wasn't really that bad, I'll just get them next time. Or we blame other people for our failures. It wasn't really my fault, they shouldn't have done that. So when we fail, our pride doesn't want to learn from it, doesn't want God to redeem it. You see, the good news about failure that we read right here is that God can redeem it. If you fail and humble yourself and repent and turn to Jesus and ask forgiveness for your failure, God redeems failure. As it says here that the Jewish people rejected Jesus. They failed God, but their failure means salvation for the world. And when they eventually accept Jesus as their Messiah, how much more their fullness. That and It says later on that that will probably mean the resurrection of the dead. When the Jewish people accept Jesus as their Messiah. So God redeems failure. So if you failed, and we have, if you failed today, what you probably did, God can redeem that. If you'll humble yourself, rather than taking pride in how you failed, and saying, well, it wasn't really my fault, it's not all that bad, and that's just my flaws, and you've got to accept me the way I am. If you would humble yourself and say, no, I failed, forgive me, God redeems that. And God uses failures to fulfill His Word. Because all throughout the Old Testament, God had said this, that He would open up salvation to the Gentiles, and that His people would reject Him. And God used that failure, He redeemed it, so that everyone could be saved by grace. God redeems failures, and He uses failures to fulfill His Word. If we can't earn our salvation by good works, this is good news. We can't lose our salvation by bad works. We can't lose our salvation by failure, because then it's works. God redeems failures. God forgives failure. If you humble yourself, our failures, we can use that opportunity to remind us of our old fleshly nature. That when we fail, and instead of responding in pride, we respond in humility. We're reminded that failure is our old self coming back before we were a Christian, trying to come back and cause problems and pursue sin and all these things. And it reminds us of that. So they should also remind us of our new nature in Jesus. Because the Bible says our old man is dead and the new man is alive. And when we fail, that's our old person fighting back. But that can also remind us of Jesus and the grace we've been given. And our failures do not stop God's plan. Because Israel failed God. That didn't stop His plans. You see, our pride will make us think it all depends on us. And if I fail, I ruined everything. God can't do anything with me because I failed. But God doesn't depend on you. We'll see it again in a minute. God doesn't depend on you. He uses failures. What have you failed at recently? Is it as big of a failure as Israel rejecting Jesus as Messiah? Look what God says He will do through their failure. What can God do through your failure if you will humble yourself to Him and repent and ask for humility and not minimize it and not blame other people? So that's Israel's failure. Now Paul moves on to talking specifically to Gentiles, to us, and what we should learn from this. So we continue on this path of humility. So the next one, number four, is our dependence on God humiliates us. Verses 13 through 18. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So first, Paul's just saying, He's an apostle of the Gentiles. He's trying to make Jewish people jealous. So they accept Jesus because, again, once the Israelite nation as a whole accepts Jesus, their acceptance will be life from the dead, the resurrection of the dead, the end of human history. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, 
and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And this is our dependence on God and our position with Him. This one, I think, for me, one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible, that we were the wild olive tree. We were, see, God's natural olive tree in this illustration is the Jewish people. And we Gentiles were not part of God's tree. We were the wild olive tree. We were gross to look at, filthy in our sins. And God takes us. We're the branches on that wild olive tree. And God takes branches from that tree and grafts them on to the olive tree, the one with his promises, with uh, the fatness of the olive tree, partaker of the root. These are God's promises. He's taken us from our sinful position and grafted us into his promises, into his salvation. What he's promised from the beginning, that he would save the world from their sin. He's taken us from that and grafted us into that. And that tells us doesn't have anything to do with us. We're branches. And Jesus uses a similar illustration in John 15, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And the branches don't do anything. The tree can survive without the branches, but the branches can't survive without the tree. The only purpose of the tree is to bear fruit. And those are the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, kindness, long-suffering. You read about those in Galatians. Our job is to bear fruit. And we don't break ourselves off of our old olive tree, and we don't graft ourselves onto the new olive tree. I don't even know if anyone can graft. I'm not a gardener. Is it possible to graft a branch on an... I don't know. You can do it with skin. I know that. Uh, but can you... To graft a branch onto another tree, a branch can't do that on its own. It can't do it on its own. A branch doesn't do it on its own. A branch can't break itself off and attach itself to another tree. It takes God to do that. And Jesus is the tree. He is the vine. And the glory belongs to the root, not to the branches. And we are the branches. Our job is to bear fruit. There's no life in the branch itself. The branch only has life when it's attached to the vine. And God puts us there. And it's we depend on Him. And this is our position regarding Jesus. See, our pride likes to think we did something to earn that. And that God broke off branches so he could put me on there. That's what it deals with next. But no, it's all God. Branches don't do any of that. Branches don't have life. When a branch isn't connected to the tree, it's dead. So our dependence on God should humble us. Next one, faith humbles us, 19 through 21. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So this is the humility we need to have about this. We could say, well, you know what? God picked me. I'm the branch, and he chose me to put me on the tree, and he broke off other branches so that I could fit. Doesn't that make me great? Paul even says here, well said, but... They were broken off because of unbelief, because they rejected Jesus. They didn't put their faith in Jesus. They put their faith in their works. They were broken off, and for a time they're hardened. Their hearts are hardened against Jesus, we'll read in a minute. And you were only grafted onto that tree because of faith, not because of anything you did, because God chose you and you responded to Him. He puts you onto that tree. God didn't pick you because you're great. He picked you because He's great. And God didn't pick you for your glory. He picked you for His glory. And this is what we see through the whole Bible from Moses to the disciples that God picks the people who will give Him glory. That He chooses the foolish of the world to shame the wise. And God chooses people because He chooses people because He's great and it shows His glory, not ours. So this idea of faith, we're only on this tree because of faith. And that humbles us. Next, God's sovereignty humbles us, 22 through 24. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. 
And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And this is talking about God's sovereignty. And this means that God, God is God. God doesn't answer to anybody. God gets to do what He wants. He is in authority. Because it says that God is severe and God is good. And God is glorified in both of those. God is the God of justice and the God of mercy. It says that God was severe on those He broke off. Those who rejected Jesus, God was severe and broke them off. And those who accepted Jesus, He was good and grafted them in. But don't be proud. Don't be... We need to be humble about it because if God took those branches off, He can put them back in. He's talking about the Jewish nation. And once He puts them back in, how much more will He be glorified through that? Because that's their natural tree. You know, I think of a couple months ago, we had the Jews for Jesus here. And if you're Jewish and brought up in that whole environment, and then you accept Jesus as Messiah, I mean, you understand on a whole other level than us Gentiles, knowing all those Jewish traditions and what everything mean, and they went through the Passover and all the symbolism and that. So that's their natural tree. And when God puts them back in there, that's their natural tree. We were out of the uh, wild olive tree. But people are offended about God's sovereignty. Because like I said earlier, we want to talk about the good God, the God who loves everyone, the Jesus who carries lambs around everywhere. But we're offended about God's severity, God's wrath, that God doesn't always carry, or that Jesus doesn't always just carry lambs around, that Jesus is also a lion and who rebukes people and points out their sin. We can't have God's goodness without God's severity. And that should humble us. And what actually happens is God's severity is connected to His wrath. And that's God's hatred of sin. God hates sin because we are created to be better than that and we choose sin over Him. And God's wrath actually makes God more loving. Because if God is not severe, if God is not... If we don't like hearing about God's wrath and we only like hearing about God's love, then we're minimizing God's love. Because if God does not hate sin, it means we're not all that bad. It means we're pretty lovable. It wasn't that hard for Jesus to come to the earth and die for us because our sins weren't that great. If we don't want to hear about God's wrath, we minimize His love. And if we're so much better than we are, Jesus' cross wasn't really all that heavy. It wasn't that big of a burden. But when we reduce or minimize God's wrath, God's severity, we also minimize His love. Because the truth is we are evil and we are under condemnation and we do choose sin. And God is severe on those who fell. God is wrathful. And that makes God more loving because He still loves us. Because He still sent His Son to die for us. Even though we didn't deserve it. Even though we deserve to be under His condemnation, God still sends. And that makes God more loving than if He was just the nice, happy, hippie Jesus lamb-holding, sandal-Birkenstock-wearing guy. Jesus was merciful on those who asked. Those who needed healing, Jesus gave it. Those who needed rebuke, Jesus gave it. Jesus is good and severe. God is good and God is severe, and God is glorified in both. So His severity, His wrath, should humble us. Next, God's plans, 25 through 29 should humble us. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election... They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul is writing, and this was God's plan, that he would choose the nation of Israel, he would send his son Jesus to be the suffering servant first, rather than the glorious conqueror that that was coming, 
that Israel would reject Jesus for a time, that he hardened their hearts, it says, but they will turn back to him. Okay, this was God's plan. And God's plans should humble us because our pride says, I make my plans. I decide what's happening in my life. When God decides he's going to do something with you, how do you respond? In humility or in pride? No, God, I didn't have that planned in my life. I wanted to do this. And that's pride. Now, I'll tell you a secret. Because we always want to know, what's God's plan for my life? You hear that question a lot. And God's plan for your life is that you glorify Him. If you're doing which glorifies God, you're fulfilling His plan. See, God's plan isn't you have to be on this path and it's one tiny little thing or you're off of His plan. God's plan is revealed in His Bible and if you are glorifying Him, then you're following His plan. You're doing His will. We get hung up on what's God's will. Should I go this way or that way? And there's nothing wrong. You know, we should think those things through and make sure we're doing what God has planned. But if we're glorifying God, that's why He's revealed to us. See, the Bible talks about God has two types of wills. We'll get more into this in Romans 12. That there's God's sovereign will. This is the will of God that we do not know about. God did not tell us. God did not reveal it to anybody what's His sovereign will. And when we ask the why question, why are you doing this, God? We're trying to look into God's sovereign will. And God never, never reveals His sovereign will to people because He has His revealed will, which is the Bible, His Word. If that's God's revealed will. That's what He's shown to us. And what that says is not that we have one little tiny life path we can go on or else we're out of God's thing. But if we are glorifying Him, that's why He were made. That's, that's why we were made and that's His plan for us. So the problem, when we are in conflict with God's plan, it's because we're not wanting to glorify Him. It's when we want to choose the path that glorifies ourselves. When we want to choose the path it says, you know what, God, I don't care what you said about marriage. I'm going to pursue this. When we say, I don't, I don't care what you said about money, God. I'm going to keep my money. See, when the conflict is with God's plan is when we're pursuing our own thing. And that becomes an idol. And then anything that gets in the way of you and your idol becomes your enemy. And you demonize those things so you can pursue your idol. So God's plan is for you to glorify Him. And if you're doing that, there's not really a conflict. When James 4, 13-17 is probably the most condensed part about God's plans. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now your boast and your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. See, that's when we make the plan. I'm going to go here and I'm going to make a profit and I'm going to do my thing, not glorifying God, but myself. That's when our plans conflict. When we see God's glory, when we are humbled, we are in His plan. So we do not know as humans God's sovereign will. We don't know that. We know His revealed will, which is in the Bible. And we only know that by reading it. He's kind of like earlier today when we did the baptism down at Dierkeith. And as I was leaving, some of you saw Nora... My daughter, like two and a half years old, got very upset because she wanted to play on the playground. And I felt bad making her leave, And uh, but we had to go. Now, as parents, we do this sovereign versus revealed will kind of thing. Because from our point of view, Adrian and I, when we were taking Nora, she thought this would be great. I get to go play on the playground. Our sovereign will, so to speak, was I had to get home so I could prepare for tonight. What we revealed to Nora was no. <laughs> She doesn't know that. She doesn't understand what was going on behind it. She just hears the no. And that's how God works with His sovereign will. We don't know. We will not know. And it's dangerous to say we do know God's sovereign will. What we know is what He's told us. And that's in His Word. So God's plans humble us because our plans and His plans are only in alignment when we seek His glory, not our own. And then mercy humbles us. Verses 30 through 32. For as ye were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you they also may contain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, 
that he might have mercy on all. And this is awesome because it's saying this is sort of Paul's summary of the Jewish people rejecting Jesus. He's saying God is letting them be disobedient so that when he saves them, it's mercy so that they know it was God and not me. And he did that with us. We were disobedient to him and we were pursuing our own plans and our own sin. And I do what I want in my life. I don't care what God might have to say. He allows us to be disobedient so he can be merciful. And mercy humbles us. And this was my life, probably a lot of yours, right? We've, a lot of times we find God when we're at the very bottom. And when in my life I was about to get divorced and my life was going down the toilet and I had nothing going for me at all. And I was an atheist, but I still cried out to God, which happens a lot. Doesn't make sense logically, but neither does atheism. Burn. Uh, but he allows us to be disobedient so that we know. I know Everything I'm doing in my life is because of God. The reason why I'm married, the reason why I have kids, the reason why I'm standing here is because of God. Because without me, I would not be here. Our disobedience shows His mercy and that humbles us. It has nothing to do with us. We were in the wild olive tree and He grafted us in because of grace through His Son Jesus because He paid for our sins. So mercy humbles us. And so finally to close, Paul responds to this with glorifying God. We'll end the chapter and this whole thought on election that God chooses certain people to be saved. So verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. See, this is what we should all be doing. Seeing all these reasons. Again, this is what God is teaching us in this chapter is be humbled. We didn't have anything to do with it. That he uses failures and he takes us into his the goodness of His olive tree so that we can be partakers of grace because of mercy. And we should be humbled most of all by God Himself. God humbles us. That's what Paul is saying right here. All these other things are secondary to God Himself should humble us. Because if we're not humbled by God Himself, then our pride creeps up and we dispute with God about grace. We dispute with God about faith. We dispute with God about mercy and about our dependence on Him. If we don't have already a proper submission to God as God and getting off of the throne of our lives and letting Him be there. And Paul says that God should humble us because His ways are above us. Verse 33, The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Our pride doesn't like this. Our pride wants to know everything God knows. See, that's our, as humans trying to dabble into God's sovereign will and figure things out, that's not for us to know. We don't know everything God knows. His ways are above us. His wisdom is above us. His knowledge is above us. His judgments are unsearchable and His ways are past finding out. First part of verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Again, we are humble before God because we can't fully understand Him. And we don't like this, but really who, well, we don't always like it, I should say. Sometimes we do. I love it because I don't want to serve a God that I can fully understand, a God that makes complete sense to me. How weak is that? And that tells you we created that God. If this God makes sense to me, oh, I earn my salvation because I'm a good guy. A God wants me to be part of his people. If it makes sense to us, that says we created that God. This God is eternal, and this God is true, and we can't fully understand Him. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? We can't advise Him, we can't counsel God. And the fact that God will even listen to us because of His Son Jesus is an honor, and that should humble us. But we like to think we should tell God what He should do with our life. And that we can figure out His sovereign will and we want to tell Him, this is God, what I think you should do. I think I might know better than you in this situation. So you should listen to me. It says, who has become His counselor? Nobody can tell God what to do. He humbles us. Who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him. So we can't give Him anything except for our sin. That's the only thing God wants from us is our sin. And this also tells us He is real. 
Because if He was a made-up God by us, by humans, we demand an offering. And that's what false gods do. You need to sacrifice. You need to give me your money. You need to be a good person. You need to follow this. You need to do these rituals. See, false gods demand an offering. The real God, our God, the Christian God, can't give to Him to repay Him. We give Him nothing but our sin, and He gives us everything. He gives us grace in His Son, because everything is His. Of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. So one final thing. We're going to read from Philippians chapter 2, 5 and 11, very, 5 through 11, very well known section of the Bible about Jesus that kind of summarizes this. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this says so much about our humility and our response to God. Because as Christians, our ultimate goal in life is to be like Jesus. We never will be, but we follow Him. We're His disciples. And it says this is what Jesus did. Jesus is God. Jesus was in the form of God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That says Jesus is God. He's eternally God the Son. has ruled and reigned in heaven before creation was even made. He is eternally God. But Jesus made Himself of no reputation. God the Son enters into human history taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, of a humble Galilean peasant who was born in a barn and who was rejected and spit on and mocked and suffered shame for our sake. He left all that to take on the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. That's why we can be saved, why we can be put on to the good olive tree because Jesus humbled himself. See, in the pattern is Jesus humbles himself and then he is exalted again because Jesus rises from the dead to show that our, his payment for our sins was accepted and now he is in heaven ruling and reigning and he is exalted. He is the name above every name. Even from a logical standpoint, that's true because there's no other name who's been worshipped more in human history than Jesus. No other name that's been praised more in human history than Jesus. Jesus is the name above every name. And He is exalted. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so you remember, you'll either be humbled or you'll be humiliated. And you will either humble yourself in this life that Jesus is Lord and bow your knee to Him and confess and be saved, or you'll be humiliated on the day of judgment as you're condemned to hell to justly pay for your sins. And see, Jesus hum- was humbled and He was exalted. We don't often focus on this part of these verses. The very beginning, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, this is our model of humility. Jesus is our Christian life is all about Jesus and He is our model for humility that He would do that. So if Christians, we know Jesus. This is the mind that should be in us. To be humble before God. And then the other humbling comes later. I didn't want to get too big into that because that would be for a different section of Scripture. This is about being humble before God. Because if you're not that, you can't be humble before other people. But this should be the mind in us to be like Jesus who emptied himself, made himself of no reputation and now he's exalted. He didn't have to humble himself but he did to pay for our sins. And this is the mind that should be in us that we should look at God and be humbled because of his grace, because of election, because of our failures. We should be humbled because of our dependence on him, because of faith. We should be humble because of God's sovereignty be humble because of God's plans and be humbled because of God's mercy. Because it says in James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. 
It starts with humbling ourselves before God. If you don't know Jesus, again, you are still part of the wild olive tree with no none of the promises attached to you. And you are under condemnation and you will bow your knee to Him and confess with your tongue that He is Lord, either now in humility or at judgment in humiliation. See, this is the root of human pride. It's why do we think we don't need God? But same with if you are not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up to salvation and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight that you would work in us and convict us of where we are being proud. I know I am. And I know that pride starts with being proud against you, not knowing your word well enough, not following your son, not seeing the example he is for us. So help us to humble ourselves to you right now, God, to confess to you our sins and our failures, that you would forgive us and that we would rejoice in the salvation you've given us. And Father, I pray also that you'd send the Holy Spirit to convict those people who don't know you, that you would show them that they are being proud and boastful against you and that they will either be humble now or humiliated at judgment. We thank you, Jesus, that you provided salvation for us so that it will be entirely by grace through faith in your name. And it's in that name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.